0: Welcome to the Words Matter Podcast, the Course Health Series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter Podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So on this episode of the Course Health Series, I'm speaking with Professor Ivor Rafe Edwards about his Chapter 9 of the Course Health book titled Causality and Dispositionality in Medical Practice. Rafe is a Professor of Medicine and Senior Advisor and former Director at the Uppsala Monitoring Centre, which is the WHO Collaborating Centre for International Drug Monitoring. He has worked in clinical toxicology, in the fields of drug abuse, acute and chronic poisoning, toxicity from industrial chemicals, as well as adverse drug reactions. Rafe now works on medical and legal aspects of causality, as well as issues of risk and benefit evaluation and data mining approaches to support signal detection and evaluation. So in this episode we talk about Rafe's view of causality early on in his medical career. We talk about his role in leading the global work to improve clinical reporting on possible drug side effects. We talk about how when working on medicine safety globally, he sees that different dispositions and different population groups affect how they respond to medicines. And Rafe shares some examples from his own clinical work where some of the dispositionist features of causality have been important. We talk about the time it takes for a rich causal story to emerge. And finally we discuss the problem of relying too much on quantitative evidence and statistics to measure and standardise medical practice and treatments so it was a pleasure speaking with Rafe. He has vast and varied experience in medicine and it was great to hear the role that causal dispositionism has played in his career. His many anecdotes, great sense of humour and the perfect voice for podcasting made the conversation all the more enjoyable. So I bring you Professor Ivor Rafe Edwards.
1: Rafe, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, yeah, I think I'm uh, going to enjoy it. Whether anyone else enjoys it, we'll see.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's in my general philosophy of the entire podcast, which is to have conversations which I would like to have and I would like to listen to as a listener. And if people like them, then that's great. If not, then well.
1: Well, hopefully I can uh, entertain you then.
0: So we're talking about the chapter that you wrote, which is chapter nine of the course health book, and that's titled Causality, Dispositionality in Medical Practice. So maybe we can start with you telling us a little bit about your clinical background. Well,
1: my clinical back- backgrounds uh, pretty diverse, unusual for today. I was uh, had my undergraduate training in Birmingham, which was a very much scientifically orientated uh, medical school and training and then my immediate postgraduate training was in Sheffield which is just the opposite it was more traditional and more based on the humanity and uh, uh, rather than the science not that there were, I mean there was science there of course but it, it was a, a striking difference to me at the time and uh, I was lucky enough to uh, go through several different disciplines, each of which had uh, an impact on me. So I, I I did general medicine, endocrinology, dermatology, and neurology during that time with very good teachers. Prior to, I mean, in my undergraduate time, I had worked with a series of people who. Had an interest in cardiology, which we we perhaps will come back to.
0: And it's interesting that you said that your education Sheffield was more traditional, but yet had more humanities within mm. the course.
1: Yes, the the Birmingham was all for a uh, basic science underpinning of everything, and. Uh, Sheffield had a a kind of humanities underpinning for everything with the idea that you should uh, understand people rather than science. And indeed, I've come to realize that uh, this distinction is important because essentially I don't think that uh, many people get a real understanding of science in medicine they use science in medicine. Medicine is a discipline of its own. It really, the application of all aspects of science to a patient, or to a group of patients, if we're thinking about uh, social medicine.
0: Mm. And I suspect, not just the application of science, but the application of all all different types of knowledge, whether it's knowledge derived from science or knowledge from the humanities or artistry or sociology? Absolutely,
1: yes. My interest when I went to medical school was in forensic science, really starting with Sherlock Holmes, and that's actually stayed with me. I mean, he, he was very interesting in, uh, to me in the books in that he did understand people, but he was constantly looking for a scientific underpinning as well. Hmm. And that stayed with me.
0: And at that point, were you leaning more towards to having been in Birmingham then went to Sheffield? Did you feel more at home at Sheffield in terms of the education? Did the emphasis on humanity sit better with you than the science?
1: No, not particularly. I'm an observer of people and always have been, and that includes always asking the question, why? What I found uh, disturbing about uh, medicine in Birmingham and as it uh, developed elsewhere but not in Sheffield is the increasing use of normative statistics the, the idea that uh, uh, one has a, a norm which is roughly 70% of the population, so that there are 30% that don't figure, and they can be either... I, I wrote my first essay at medical school, in fact, was saying, okay, that means there are people you can regard as subnormal and supernormal. What does that mean? And certainly it means if you put the label of subnormal, that rules them out. And supernormal people are also ruled out but are uh, uh, glorified in some ways. And uh, I thought either group is of some interest. So I've always been Hmm. uh, uh, somewhat suspicious of anything that's based on normative values in terms of applying it to individual patients. And over the years, I've very clearly understood that uh, people are different in very many ways. I was lucky, to, in fact, to have a, an introductory clinical teacher in Birmingham who did see people very uh, differently, but he was also scientifically trained but he was constantly saying look at a person listen to them he said things like this is a diagnosis you can make in the street just by a simple careful observation and uh, those things have stuck with me and you can you can see how this is how, how it affected me in relation to
0: dispositionality mm. so and we can move on to that so perhaps thinking back in the the beginning of your medical career, how you conceptualize or viewed causation, if you even thought about causation at that time, and it might, like, like we mentioned before, you might have to put some kind of post hoc explanation on it. But how were you thinking about causation mm. then? Causation
1: was philosophically inductive. Really, you uh, look at a collection of symptoms and signs and uh, and the background story uh, as described so that you've got some chronology and you say ah i know that fits this particular disease and of course we uh, then uh, understood that uh, the symptoms and signs may not give you an entirely clear diagnosis but you could start to think of a differential diagnosis and and order the the possibilities of of the pattern that you see fitting in the pattern that is classic for the disease. But it does raise the question always, when you see a pattern, is that a complete pattern? Uh, Dermatology was incredibly useful for me there because I had a, a boss who was constantly saying, this is a form frust." of a typical diagnosis. This this is not quite what you'd uh, normally expect, but I think that this is related to that disease rather than anything else.
0: So what's interesting is that you were critical of the normative data, the statistical data, but yet in the pattern recognition or the forward reasoning or the inductive reasoning that you would use, you have to have some sense of what's typical, what's a typical presentation, what's a normal presentation. So there's a difference there between kind of the qualitative sense of normal, typical, but the quantitative statistical description.
1: That's right, and that's where it was different in Birmingham and Sheffield, because in Birmingham, the the, the step would the next step would always be do a series of tests, get a post mortem examination retrospectively, <laughs> uh, perhaps, but. Always it was a move towards relying on science and testing that way rather than trying to work out in more detail what kind of person this was, what they did, and all of those things that are very different in different human beings.
0: And so early on in, in your career when you, were, when you mentioned that you were using inductive reasoning or pattern recognition was your clinical gaze, were you still interested largely in symptoms, in manifestations of possible disease? Were you interested in the patient's narrative or really focused on the patient's story? You mentioned chronology.
1: Well, in, uh, in Sheffield, they emphasised the patient narrative, and I've always understood that was important, Sherlock Holmes again. Ever since then... I found the patient narrative absolutely vital. It's pursued me throughout my career as being something that uh, is really absolutely vital to understanding what's going on. And it's not just the narrative about the disease, it's the narrative about the patient themselves. I had a patient, for example, who was On uh, a warfarin anticoagulant, which uh, is a difficult drug because it interacts with a variety of other drugs and chemicals. This guy was fine most of the time. His uh, anticoagulation was uh, set within a certain level that we thought was right for him. And uh, it was only when he went on holiday that things went haywire. So, I thought, well, what on earth does he do? What's he come in contact with on his holidays? And so I asked him about his holidays, and they, they seemed perfectly normal. And and then he said, uh, "I'm always glad to uh, take my holidays. I'm uh, a carpenter, but I uh, work with uh, a lot of glues, and uh, I." <laughs> Get, get really tired of the smell of these uh, glues. And there we had it. I mean, you know, al- almost as an aside, the the issue of uh, potential interaction between uh, his mm. treatment and his environment w- was uh, clear.
0: And what, what resonates in my head from we're now on episode nine of this series is Eleanor Rocker saying to start with the patient narrative and so rather than starting with with the disease or with you know really focus on the symptoms of the disease and then bolting on the narrative at the end really approaching a clinical interaction with the narrative at the forefront of of that interaction
1: yeah i i i think the narrative is absolutely key it's key, it's key to successful treatment in a, a broader sense. I mean, if you think of the phenomenology of disease, you have to think about the disease in that person's situation. I'll give you another example from uh, the workplace. I had a patient whose uh, antihypertensive treatment with a vasodilator was fine, or seemed fine. But then... He he was complaining of fainting, and uh, I thought, well, you know, he when he's here, his blood pressure's all right, so what goes wrong? Easy answer. The guy worked in a foundry where he was exposed to very high temperatures, which, of course, caused vasodilation and a, a drop in blood pressure, and that, of course, was incredibly dangerous from, f- for him. Uh, the, the, the possibility that he might faint in that kind of working situation.
0: Mm. And there's, there's often in education or medical education or healthcare education this eagerness to, to reach the diagnosis, you know, jump to the diagnosis. I know much of the early research into clinical reasoning was looking at the speed of diagnoses between novice and experienced clinician and who can generate the most forms of hypotheses or diagnoses, a novice or more experienced clinician – so there's there's always tended to be this, this leap towards you know, finding the cause. What is you know, and, and calling it something. Absolutely.
1: That that of course is quite wrong. I mean, almost everything we do is complex and multifactorial. That's another issue that I have with uh, normative thinking. Of course, you know that that does tend to focus you on finding the cause and the development of medicine uh, which is one of the uh, things that disturbs me is towards thinking that you know if I have an MRI scan that'll tell me everything it's wrong I uh, again I give you another example uh, this time of uh, the father of a colleague of mine complained of backache and he went to see a very good orthopedic surgeon. And the orthopedic surgeon was very good because he recognized that he had a temperature and thought, this is uh, not the kind of thing that I usually treat and referred him on. I saw him and he indeed had a temperature and was clearly uh, had some, some kind of infection. And to cut a long story short, I decided that he, uh, some of the clinical tests indicated that he had a psoas abscess, which was caused, causing the pain in his back. So I referred him to a surgeon, a professor of surgery, in fact, who said, mm, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, and, but we'll do an ultrasound scan, which was negative. And so he refused to uh, operate. In fact, he didn't do anything. Two days later, the guy was in intensive care with a septicemia and an abscess, a huge abscess on his arm, and he died of uh, a septicemia. And I'm sorry to say that it was uh, the pathologist who found the psoas abscess. Which was where it all started, but the question is, why was that missed by uh, the ultrasound? And the answer is, the uh, uh, must be that the uh, pus in the ultrasound was uh, reflecting the the ultrasound waves in the same way as the surrounding tissue, and therefore
0: you couldn't tell. So, so that the the weight of Belief, if you like, was placed on the results of the scan rather than. Absolutely, listening to the
1: patient and examining the patient carefully.
0: Yeah, or, or even your intuition, your clinical judgment that you know, something's not quite right here. Absolutely. Yeah, that's also true.
1: The intuition of experienced clinicians has been very important. When I did uh, the neurological thing, there was uh, a, an old, very experienced clinician who could quote papers accurately from uh, you know decades before <laughs> and was able to say ah i've read about this he may not have seen the case cases but he he was able to bring in with his brilliant memory a lot lot of information that uh, was extremely useful <laughs> i've seen this before
0: which with the development of the evidence-based medicine paradigm, there's been a tendency to to not fully jettison clinical judgment, because it's definitely in there in that original definition of EBM, but there's been perhaps a tendency to jump onto the evidence, the research, usually in the form of form of statistics or quantitative evidence, for the sake of clinicians' judgment and sometimes patients' values. Yeah.
1: The Yes, that's what we're losing. Uh, I mean, we must have the clinician's judgment alongside the evaluation of tests. The other thing is that we mustn't stop with making a diagnosis and saying, "uck, okay, that's it. We must find out how they're progressing whether they're improving or not and what factors are surround them and for successful treatment of course we need to know their environmental factors as I say the phenomenology of disease comes uh, into play.
0: So in terms of causation do you remember do you recall how you came into contact with dispositionalism? Was there a particular moment that, that sparked your interest? It's an interesting thing a very a
1: very interesting uh, little anecdote my uh, wife took my job as uh, director of the uh, Uppsala Monitoring Centre which monitors adverse reactions worldwide and uh, she was contacted by uh, uh, Ronnie the boss of uh, Cause Health and uh, she wanted t- to talk to me because she had read some of my papers and said, essentially, this is dispositionality in action. So, (laughs) can we talk to And then uh, we uh, had a meeting in Berlin, and uh, I spoke at the meeting, and we really taken it from there. There's a lot that... uh, well, I, I said to them, I, I hadn't any idea that I was practicing dispositionality for, for decades. But thank you, I, I can now do it better because uh, there are many, it, it sparked off a whole lot of new ideas about uh, how dispositionality can, can work and why it's very important. I'm sure it's, well, I know that it's uh, very important in your clinical uh, sphere as well, and that that you've made better use of it than we have in in, uh, medicine so far. Because when we we start to look at dispositionality and the results of tests that kind of explain what goes, uh, what's going on, you've got something really powerful. It's, particularly important with adverse drug reactions, because uh, what we're doing is really looking at the people who aren't the norm. These, I mean, most people do have benefit from drugs. So the the people that don't have benefit from drugs, it, it suggests that you, very much, that you should ask the question, I wonder why? Which is very, very important.
0: And I think you might have an example of that, with the malaria medication that was tested in in Europe or the UK and had effects on one group but not in people in Africa.
1: It's not quite that. It's, It's a malaria drug that was proposed and accepted by regulators in the UK and it, in fact, was also accepted by WHO, as a, a new cheap drug that would be very effective in malaria, which it was. But it happened to be a drug that also contained uh, major ingredients, a drug that was very important in, and still is very important in treating leprosy, namely Dapsone. Now, we know, we knew already that Dapsone was a, not a good, a good drug in some Africans. Because they lack uh, an enzyme called G6PD, glucose 6 dehydrogenase. And uh, if you lack that enzyme, there's a risk, a big risk, that uh, you'll get uh, a breakdown of the red blood cells. And uh, in the worst instance, catastrophic breakdown in, in blood cells. And this was. I mean, leprosy is a fairly rare disease and you treat it usually with uh, very frequent uh, checks on how the the treatment's working with malaria the proposal was to give it as a one off and uh, this was ridiculous and uh, there were several deaths in children because it, it was uh, used used first in children, and I was horrified. I tried, I tried, uh, in fact, to stop the launch of this drug, and uh, they they decided to try to go ahead with it, with warnings. And again, you see dispositionality. What on earth? I mean, we know people don't heed warnings, and you're talking about a population, a rural African population, which probably in fact, we know, doesn't have the same kind of education or approach. or And uh,
0: it was a disaster,
1: yes. And it was taken off the market, of course.
0: And in that case, dispositionism tells us, or rather, through the lens of dispositionism, what do we know about that case? Well, uh, in a sense, they had some sort
1: of primitive view about dispositionality, which was, Okay, if there's a population that does have uh, this as a disposition, can we find out uh, before they're treated? In other words, do a test, which you can do for you can do a test for this enzyme. But the point is, the phenomenological issue is: can that work in rural Africa? And the answer is, of course, it can't. I mean, people just don't get tested before they take their malaria pills, and particularly children. It's virtu- It was virtually impossible, but it was suggested and tried and it failed.
0: I mean, it sounds like you alluded to the fact that maybe you were always a dispositionist without knowing it. Yes. So you, you haven't undergone some big transition in your practice from being a reductionist and then having a... Uh, an epiphany in, in encountering dispositionalism.
1: Not Not really, because uh, uh, my main clinical interest over a period of decades has been this issue about how to make the best use of drugs and adverse reactions to drugs and how, how to avoid problems with drugs, obviously. Uh, so I've been very interested in uh, the issues of dispositionality. I mean, we we search for those to, to try to find out, is the reason that some people have adverse re- drug reactions or indeed other people don't get any response for the, mm. from the drug at all? F- from my point of view, I, I mean, I'm very resistant to the psychoactive drugs. I uh, was once involved in some uh, experiments that we were doing and I could take 40 milligrams of Valium, and it made no difference to me. I just didn't notice it. Other people would be on the floor pretty well.
0: <laughs> so so in, in your role at the Uppsala Monitoring Centre, just by nature of the focus of the work, dispositionality was part of your work, whether you kind of knew about it formally or applied it formally, just you were interested in the variance in responses to drugs... Well, what we
1: were doing we we were probably the first people in the in the world doing uh, pattern recognition to I- try to identify the factors that were common to people who had problems. We would dearly like to be able to look at the genetic uh, basis for it, but uh, it's, it's so difficult to get uh, permissions to look into patients' uh, data, the the patients that have had adverse drug reactions, and get enough of them to agree to have their personal data looked at. I mean, we've got the superficial data on something like 30 million patients from around the world in that database, probably more now. But the, the point is... How do we get to them to uh, find out uh, if they're willing to have their genetic testing done and that's that's one of the disappointments of the day, but of course it's uh, yeah, it's a reasonable issue.
0: do you want to say something about how dispositionalism influence your day to day practice? We talked about the narrative and how you are very much attuned and interested in that, but I guess I'm just trying to get a sense of. How adopting this this framework had material changes to your behavior in terms of your examination approach, your investigation approach, maybe your, your treatment strategies? Mm.
1: Right. First thing is I have always taken much too long to examine patients. <laughs> The administrators have always thought I was a terrible guy to have around. And uh, my wife also uh, thought that uh, it was terrible because I was always later home than any of my colleagues. And it's taking time with patients. I mean, we're, t- we're told that uh, in general practice, it's an average of 10 minutes per patient. That is... I think, utterly preposterous if you really want to get to know what's uh, going on with patients. The second thing is that uh, in hospital, the uh, same doctors don't treat the patients throughout anymore. It's no longer a a clinical team effort. It's uh, whichever doctor happens to be uh, on duty. So there's very little chance to get to know something about a patient in hospital, but the same happens in general practice, too. I mean, GPs have locums all the time, so it's getting to know what happens to patients is problematic, in my view. I mean, I've been in hospital uh, a couple of times uh, recently, and uh, I don't think I was Clinically examined from top to toe, nor was a, a full case history taken. It, it didn't matter. I uh, only needed a pacemaker, and that was that was it. It was sorted out.
0: <laughs> you had the right dispositions then, hmm, fortunately.
1: But interestingly, uh, I've uh, since then I have refused a treatment that uh, was offered, namely defibrillation i had an arrhythmia and uh, i thought an arrhythmia with a pacemaker increases the risk of, uh, of problems and i had no pro- i had no symptoms from the arrhythmia at all so i elected just to take an anticoagulant but the the, the hospital have kept on uh, you know i've had two or three meetings with them and each time they said oh you really should be uh, defibrillated it's a, a simple treatment and, uh, and i said yeah but i mean people have died and uh, i i don't have a, any problem with how i am at the moment and interestingly the last uh, uh, visit i had i was back in uh, sinus rhythm normal heart, heart rhythm didn't wasn't even using my pacemaker. I mean, it just is uh, standing by at the moment.
0: <laughs> so, that's interesting. Just picking up on the two things that you said about taking time, and it's such a it seems so rudimentary. But if we're interested in the narrative, then it just takes time for that narrative to, to emerge or to be constructed. It takes time, you're not going to get that all that story yes. in 10 minutes or 12 minutes. No you, you you
1: can't and I mean not with a, a stranger and not with often with an elderly person because they they they're slower at expressing themselves and uh, yeah, you you, you you can't do it in ten minutes. though some oh it must be at least a decade ago. there was a paper in the BMJ on how to uh, diagnose depression in 10 minutes with two questions, okay? You smile <laughs> and you're right. But there were people who said, oh, this is absolutely wonderful. This is the way to go. We can do this and get on with uh, treatment, giving them uh, the antidepressant treatment they need. I mean, how ridiculous. Yeah, Yes, you may be able to I, I mean, in a sense, I think you can tell a person who's mm. uh, depressed almost as soon as they walk in the room. Their body language tells you. But uh, to understand what that means to them and why they are depressed and what you should do about it is quite different. And I mean, we we overuse antidepressants amazingly when we know Mm. i think that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is a a better option
0: Mm. i mean even with those two questions they may 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 well get you to the diagnosis of depression but you have no causal story from those two questions you just got a couple of indicators for no
1: of course not you 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 don't know how long they've had it, was there a, a, a factor that uh, put them into depression? It's, it's really uh, a major problem. But the particular thing about psychiatric illness is that you need to know what it does to them in relation to their daily activities, their work, and so on. Because there are those secondary issues are Clearly important in relation to uh, how they'll proceed with their depression.
0: Do you have anything to say to clinicians that might (laughs) are getting back to this idea of time and spending time with the with the patient for that narrative to to develop? What's the what do you say to the to the fear that this is wasted time or it's you know the, the conversation might deviate from topics which just aren't important and not related? directly to the to the disease or the symptoms because it's a it's it's quite a judgment to make when do those contextual factors which we all agree are important when do they become when do we start going to areas which which are just you know talking about someone's cat or what they have for breakfast if everything's important how do we know what isn't important
1: that's uh, an interesting question and of course you know the answer it depends who's asking the question <laughs> If it's uh someone whose uh, job it is to uh, reduce the costs of health care to an absolute minimum, uh, they will say a lot of that is wasted time. If you're saying that to someone who probably a a much younger person than me uh, would you uh, like to tell your story to a machine and get a diagnosis quickly they might say that's fine i'm embarrassed talking to a doctor about my whatever it is and uh, i'll get a diagnosis i can get treatment and i'll go back to work
0: i just want to read a quote from your chapter and just get you to comment on it really because it struck me as being Really interesting, but that underplays it. Of course, it's interesting. I'm going to read it out now. You state, what is the most likely causal link that explains the patient's symptoms and signs, qualitatively as well as quantitatively? And that's a question that you're posing. I just wondered if you recall that quote and and what you meant by it.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think that what I was trying to get at is that you... You can't just measure stuff. It's, again, my, my thing about metrics. You need to understand how that particular thing affects an individual. I had a, a, another pianist, for example, who, was, uh, who came and said, I uh, have, uh, uh, think I've got arthritis of the hands. And indeed he had, I mean, just on clinical examination. And uh, he was terribly worried because it affected his work. So I said, okay, we'll do some tests and I'll see you in a month, but since you have pain, I'll give you an analgesic that we usually use and you see how it goes. So he came back, confirmed that he did have uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and I said, uh, "Well, how 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 did the pills work?" And he said, "Oh, no pain." And I said, "Ah, oh, that's great, hundred percent hit." And then he said, "No, no, it's no good. It doesn't make the stiffness any better. So I'm still not able to play the piano as well as I should be able to. So you you can see." In one sense, that was a total, that would have, well, in fact, for most people, that would have been total success. In his instance, mm. more or less total failure.
0: Which, which comes back to the narrative, listening to what does this person want? Yeah, you know, we absolutely. presume that it's pain, but in yeah. this case, it wasn't pain, it was you know function of his fingers, and, and if we don't listen, we don't know. No, Exactly. But, uh, of course,
1: the quantitative aspect is often very important. And we need to, uh, I think, that's the area that's developed very considerably in medicine. We can now, uh, you know, we can get the metrics about the numbers of people who respond to therapy. But, the, but then, you know, what does respond to therapy mean? How, how does it affect their life? Or... Has it improved their life? Mm. This guy was a case in point.
0: And most of the outcomes in, in many of the trials are somewhat narrow, standardized, based on a predetermined set of mm. constructs of, of recovery, less pain, etc.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The many, many, many trials are poor from that point of view. Uh, one of the chief librarians of... Uh, the main uh, scientific library in the United States, she uh, said uh, the critical thing about clinical trials is definitions, definitions, definitions. You must know how a particular disease has been defined before you can apply metrics. And in fact, I I have a kind of uh, fair interest in philosophy. And uh, George Whitehead is one of my favorites. Uh, he was a physicist uh, in Cambridge and then uh, went as professor of philosophy at Harvard. And he, he, teach, he was teaching students and said, what's two plus two? And they said, four And he said, does that mean anything? And they said, well, yeah, it's important. I mean, two plus two always makes four. And he said, does it? And then he said, what happens if I say two chairs plus two chairs make four? And they said, well, that's fine. He said, yeah, but what happens if one of them is an armchair? Doesn't that make a big difference? And then, of course, they said, yes. And he said, Mathematics is fine, theoretically, unless you know what the practical application is, you can't be sure. I mean, you could have four chairs that are, are antique chairs, and uh, one of them has a broken leg that's been repaired. It would make a difference. You couldn't just say, his four chairs, to an antique dealer. He would say... Look at this one; it's uh, utterly useless to me. Can't sell mm-hmm.
0: it. Or well, one's a stool with no backrest. Yes, exactly. So uh, that's
1: the limitation of uh, metrics, and we see it all the time in medicine, where things aren't defined properly
0: and and devoid of context. So you know, the context there is that one's a one's a yeah, stool and one's absolutely. an armchair and. But the the quantitative you just ascribed a a numerical value to them rather than a a qualitative description. Yes.
1: You've got to for a a good clinical trial you must have a clear aim and a clear context, as you say, and a clear way of measuring outcomes. And we don't even notice that in in most papers that we read. It just isn't covered at all.
0: No, there's a few more trials now that have nested qualitative studies now, which is encouraging to see where they're interviews with patients that perhaps did respond or didn't respond and getting some context around and their experience and trying to triangulate or combine the data. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's uh, much better. I think I think we are getting uh, slightly better, but it's slow.
0: Ralph, just summarizing the main things you'd like readers to take away from your chapter. What would they be?
1: Well, I think
0: yeah, you know, it's it's it's
1: really What we've we've come to over and again in the discussion, I think, that uh, people have different dispositions and beyond the immediate physical disposition, there are other things in in their surroundings that uh, have affected them or are affecting them now that uh, will make them unique. And uh, those things must be taken into account. And I think we are going to further worsen the way society operates if we don't understand the complexity and think about dispositionality and, and, uh, and phenomenology in our dealings in healthcare particularly, but mm. in general too. I mean, it's, it's how we deal with each other.
0: Ray, thank you so much for taking us through your Chapter 9.
1: Thank you. I hope it's uh, of some interest to someone somewhere, but it's, it's always nice to talk about things from the past and not be accused of being uh, an old git. <laughs> <laughs> not at all.
0: Bye, Ray. Bye bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter education.com for all the show notes, resources, and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.